हो ना सब सो आई बिन सेइंग फॉर वीक्स नाउ दैट इन द कॉन्टेक्स्ट ऑफ शामाटा वी हैव दिस पिरामिड एंड देयर इज समथिंग सीक्वेंशियल अबाउट इट और हायरार्किकल अबाउट इट in the sense of the foundation being the sense of ease or relaxation you know it so well right you, you, you can predict everything i'm about to say but that foundation of ease of looseness and relaxation just the opposite of being uptight and then on that basis the composure the stillness the continuity the quiet single pointedness and then on top of the pyramid the clarity the vividness the acuity not just within the context of shamatha And then of course there's the synergy among all three when when the wheel of shamatha get, really gets rolling then they're all reinforcing each other. We turn to vipassana and it's very clear I think obvious to all of us by now that the practice of vipassana is all up there on the top of the pyramid, right? It's all sharp. In fact there's four and in, in, in practicing vipassana we are actually cultivating cultivating a psychological factor known as prajna, prajna. Uh and in just buddhist psychology when dealing with the 51 mental factors prajna there simply means discerning intelligence it's not doesn't have some lofty connotation like wisdom it's just discerning intelligence being sharp uh but then when you cultivate it to its perfection then we translate it as perfection of wisdom so when intelligence is matured bearing in mind just a brief tangent here there is such a thing as enormously important actually uh that intelligence is not a virtue. It's not a virtue. It all depends on who are the companions of intelligence. And that is if the companion of intelligence is egotism, arrogance, hatred, then the intelligence is like a mercenary and it goes fully into the service of mental afflictions and that's called sharap nyomonchen, afflictive intelligence. and the better you are at it the more intelligent you are the more damage you do to yourself and to everybody else yeah so that's why intelligence is not simply a virtue uh because it's a mercenary it can be just to make cooler video games which is nothing wrong with it i suppose although some of them are pretty nasty i guess um but then that would just be ethically neutral intelligence just perpetuating the same old just more video games uh and then of course there's virtuous virtuous intelligence so vipassana is really all about cultivating intelligence and leading it to wisdom so that it comes to full flower it, of course in the context of virtue uh to wisdom perfection of wisdom and it may be of interest just very briefly that in the cultivation of intelligence there are four kinds four kinds i learned this a long time ago when i was in switzerland in fact gishirap and gave me a te- uh, gave me a practice that was all about cultivating four types of intelligence I remember to this day. And the four types are sharp sharp intelligence. And we say that in English, I think in other European languages, such and such a person really sharp. Yeah, a sharp intelligence. Fast. Some people are really quick. Really really quick. Right? Nimble, fast. And then the the next Tibetan term is tangsel tangsel pretty much means clear clear intelligence lucid clear and lucid crystal clear sometimes when you if, if somebody is giving a talk on a very difficult topic and they say now tutto chiaro is it completely clear and if your intelligence is clear you say yes see <laughs> si. right 
because you've, you've just that. It's just that. I can't use any more words. It's just very clear. Third type of intelligence. And you see all those three, quick, sharp, clear, they're up on the top of the pyramid. And as we are engaging in these Vipassana practices over the last several days, we're just dancing around on the top of the pyramid. And it's no wonder if you feel a little bit tense, a bit high-strung, a bit tight, as a result of doing that practice. And this is why Shamatha comes first, and this is why he said now multiple times, from the state of equipoise, then you go into Vipassana caves again and again, that this is really yogi's route. There are many, many texts by all, in all schools of Tibetan Buddhism and among the great pundits of India well, they'll teach Madhyamaka, and they never say that. It just doesn't come up. And from the state of meditative equipoise, they're going into all of the philosophical analysis and differences of one school and another school and so forth and so on. All that has a place. But here he is. This is a short text. I mean, some of Tsongkhapa's works are massive, like 400 pages just unpacking Madhyamaka, let alone the many other great scholars. But this, as we see, he said everything he wanted to say in his root text and commentary, and they're both very short. This is the yogi's route. This is the yogi's route. Where instead of spending 10 or 15, 20 years on the debating courtyard and memorizing texts and debating them and studying and learning, uh, you take just enough of the theoretical learning to put it right into practice. And it brings about the same result. So the fourth one, though, is profound. Profound intelligence. Zappa. And that's the one that really brings about very deep transformation. To my mind, it's my interpretation. The first three are kind of preparation for that. Because if you never get to the profound one, then it doesn't sink in. It's like like drip feed of water. It doesn't get down to the deepest roots. It doesn't transform your way of viewing reality. And if it doesn't, then it didn't work. If your perspective on reality doesn't shift as a result of your hearing, thinking, and meditating on emptiness and dependent origination, if it doesn't shift the way you view yourself, your mind, your body, the environment, other people, it didn't work, right? Because it's in that shift of view, uh, assuming umetawa, the middle view, the centrist view, the majamaka view, that's what really brings about very deep change and liberation. So, we've had a lot of yang in the afternoons, a lot of yang, a lot of kind of pushy, 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 you know, as well as intellectually challenging, I think, topics when we're bringing together quantum cosmology and so forth and so on. Uh, maybe it's time to balance out a little bit. So please find a comfortable position. We'll do something a little bit different. exercise and training and cultivation of prajna is finally to unveil that which is already there and never developed. And that is your own pristine awareness. So taking refuge in this ground awareness with the aspiration to realize who you are. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state.
the, to the best of your ability, relax deeply from your core in your body, totally loose, relaxed. The breath flowing unimpededly, effortlessly, as if one no, no one's at home, as if you were deep asleep. So there's no agent who is breathing. There's just breathing. Again, as if you're deep asleep. There's no one who's doing it. Your eyes be gently open, soft, relaxed. Forehead open, no contraction. Evenly rest your awareness in the space in front of you without focusing on any object. As you rest quietly, not doing anything, you must be aware of appearances arising, visual, auditory, and so on. Appearances to the mind as well, of course. When the conceptual mind is activated, you're also aware of objects, things that have attributes. And then, of course, you're aware of being aware, aware of awareness itself. And that's about it. Appearances, objects, awareness.
And then we pose a very simple question. Do you have a sense of the appearances being over there? And your awareness of them being in here? Independent. Really resting in the subjective side. And having objects, be they appearances or other objects, on the objective side. Does that correspond to your experience? Inside and outside. Awareness in here, appearances over there. Thoughts arise, thoughts, memories, desires, and so on. Do you have a sense of them flowing forth from in here? Out into the realm of appearances. your awareness in upon itself with a question. Identify. The very nature of the awareness in here, that which is aware of appearances, and that which brings forth thoughts and images, desires, emotions. What is the nature of this subjective awareness? Examine it closely. See if you can find it and identify it. aware, that which produces thoughts and so on. Identify that, and not just what flows from that, or what appears to that, but identify that.
If you can't find, if you cannot find that mind in here that is aware, and that mind in here from which thoughts flow forth, rest in that not finding, rest in the unfindability of your own mind, the emptiness of your own awareness. Just rest. Rest without striving, without desiring, without modifying anything. still unmoving, without direction, wide open. Always fresh, aware of whatever arises, without impeding any appearances, including the activities of the mind, concepts, memories, unimpeded. Rest in the stillness of this open awareness. And just be present. by the familiar instructions of resting without distraction, without being carried off by any appearances. And without grasping, without identifying with the mind or any of the activities of the mind.
let's continue practicing now in silence.
Tamasa. So to repeat the very familiar refrain, the stronger your shamatha, the stronger your vipassana will be. And in terms of the vipassana, the sharper it is, the clearer it is, then the deeper it can be. As you cut through, you pierce the veils of revocation of yourself, your mind, your awareness as the subject in here. And when there's some glimmering of insight into the emptiness of subject, then it naturally follows that the object must be empty as well. And if the subject is empty, empty of inherent nature, and the object is empty of inherent nature, then the revocation of the bifurcation of subject object, that, that evaporates. And so in that absence of the dualistic mind, as that evaporates as if into space, then what was already there may be unveiled, and that, of course, is Ritpa. And then you just rest there. It's called the Ritpa Choksha. You're just resting in Ritpa. So... That was our best approximation of that for the time being. It's the ultimate yin, because you're really not doing anything at all. There's no striving. There's nothing to accomplish. So we return to the text. Verses that said, informed by scripture and reasoning, settle in single-pointed equipoise in the state where things do not exist the way they appear. That is to say, where you ascertain, where you ascertain the emptiness of things existing as they appear. Alternatively, Chantikirti Pada, the that is the the Reverend or the revered Chantikirti, the great Majjhimaka Master, said, the ultimate reality of the mind the ultimate reality of the mind variously brings forth the worlds of sentient beings and the physical worlds. I'm just about positive. He says, Semki Chunyi. Do you have it right in front of you, Anna? Yeah. Semki Chunyi? Semyi. Semyi. Oh, that's good. Contraction of Semki Chunyi. Excellent, yeah. So Semyi, that is exactly my translation of Semyi. Semyi is Chitata. Okay? Chitata the ultimate reality of the mind. It's a very interesting, very subtle, pithy statement. The, the, the word I've translated as brings forth is gopa, gopa. And it's not kyapa, as in generate, like, you know, cause and effect and you generate something. But gopa has it bringing forth or displaying or setting out, displaying. The worlds of sentient beings and the physical worlds. So the world of sentient beings of all kinds, the physical and the container, so to speak, the inanimate physical worlds, emerge forth. They're not being generated, like with cause and effect, not being generated by the ultimate reality of the mind. But they just, they come forth. They're displayed, they manifest from this ultimate reality of the mind. Now, in the context of Madhyamaka, this would simply be the emptiness of the mind, the shunya nature of the mind. Of course, if we look at the same statement from the perspective of Mahamudra Dzogchen, then that refers to rikpa, pristine awareness. 
So it's very subtle. It is not referring to causality. But if we ask where are all these appearances emerging from, well, on a relative level, we know this from the earlier, just straightforward shamatha teachings, that all the appearances are arising, that is to your own individual mind stream, are arising from your substrate. And you fall asleep, they all dissolve back into the substrate. That's pretty straightforward. But on the deepest level, all appearances generally, the worlds, the worlds themselves, the worlds of sentient being, that is, galaxies, planets, and so forth, all of these are brought forth, are displayed from the ultimate reality of the mind. So it's a, it's a much larger statement. Since it is taught that the mind is the root of all physical worlds and their sentient inhabitants. So again, it looks like we're definitely going into Chittamatra territory. The mind is primary, everything else is derivative. I mean, the root and the branches. Since it is taught, and you'll find this in the Parachapanamita and so forth, when you cut the root basis of the mind, and as you, I think you're familiar by now, this means cutting the reification of the mind. The grasping to the mind is being really in here, a real subject. Or in the Tibetan, Yul Chen, a real object haver. Awareness has appearances, awareness has objects. So it's an object haver. That's, that's how, and we translate that generally as subject. But when you cut the root basis of the mind, it is unlike cutting other de- deceptions. And that is, we can reify all, all kinds of things. We do. Elementary particles, galaxies, plants, and so forth. Uh, but he said, this is different. If you cut through the reification of your own mind, something deeper is going on than cutting through the reification of other things. So you should ask you should act thus. When you analyze your own mind from within the previous continuous equipoise, there it is again. It is not established as any kind of form. So that's kind of like a checklist. Okay, clear, got that one. There's no form whatsoever. It doesn't look like anything. No shape, color, etc. No physical attributes. So in the absence of it, of it having any form, so it is a clear vacuity like the sun when it is unobscured by clouds. It, that is your own mind, it gives rise to all kinds of thoughts and memories flowing outwards. If I were a partner in Zimbabwe, I would say, is it, like, is it like that or not? Examine your mind. <laughs> Remember that litany of his. Well, there's a really good one. If that's true, then you should see it's true. If it's not, then okay. Tell, tell us how your, your experience differs from that. Unlike a lamp that has been doused, the mind is an uninterrupted stream of clarity and awareness. There they are, the two defining characteristics of consciousness. That does not cease. So this sounds extremely reminiscent of the brightly shining mind referred to by the Buddha that is adventitiously, on occasion, veiled by contaminations or defilements, and then on occasion is not. But whether it's obscured or not, it's always there as an uninterrupted stream of clarity and awareness that does not cease. Yet, to the mind apprehending one's own mind, as you invert your awareness right in upon itself, mind looking at mind, the mind that you're looking at, it seems somehow independent, as if it's really in here, independent of anything out there, under its own power, so autonomous, which would certainly suggests inherent existence. So he's saying here, pretty obviously, 
that is all other appearances, people, places, and so forth, they appear as if from their own side, independent, under their own power, existing by their own inherent nature, so does the mind appear to itself. The conceived objects, that is all the objects conceived by the mind, the conceived objects that are grasped as being as they appear, so there's reification, and the mind that grasps objects as they appear, so the objects and the subject, the mind that grasps objects as they appear, are as stated by the protector Shantideva in the way of the Bodhisattva. So-called continua, that's the plural of continuum, so-called continua and collections, like rosaries, armies, and so forth, are deceptive. So I jumped the gun a little bit yesterday, giving you the panjika commentary to that, to that verse, so I don't need to do it again. But the continua, or collection, so continue over time and a collection over space. So a rosary, an army, these are collections over space. They, they occupy, they have res extensa, they are realities that occupy, or, uh, that are extended in space. And the point is that a rosary is a single entity. Just really briefly here, a rosary, how many rosaries do you have? Well, I have with me two, that is here in Tuscany, two. But each of them has 108 beads. So exactly how did 108 become one? Not to mention the string, string and a little top notch. So how did, that's a whole bunch of things. So why do you say you have one rosary when in fact you have 100 and, what, 110 or 11 separate little units there? So how did one become many? Well, obviously by conceptual designation. How did a whole bunch of soldiers marching around, each of them having their own mind stream, their own bodies, how did they become an army and so forth? And so these are deceptive. That is, the way they're apprehended, the way they appear, it's deceptive, misleading. And that's true not only for collections spread out in space, like rosary, armies, and so forth, or anything else, for example, composed of elementary particles, atoms, molecules. They're all the same. I mean, it's the same same thing. We have the schmorge, which is three elements to it, a laptop, cell phone, and and a, you know, eyeglass carrier. But... um, the eyeglass carrier, we, how many do I have in my hand? One. How many atoms do I have in my hand? Oh, I can't even count that high. How do those atoms become one thing? Conceptual designation. So when we have strung together the individual beads of a rosary, the rosary, the so-called rosary, is just an imputation. It's imputing one on many. And when we've collected individuals who bear arms, the so-called army is merely nominal, just an imputation. Of course, as usual, you don't find it in, it's not to be found in any one soldier or even a whole bunch of soldiers. I mean, any military commander knows if they just have a whole bunch of soldiers hanging out, that's not an army. It's just called a whole bunch of soldiers. You know, that's not an army. And so apart from that, apart from being mere, I'm going to say, I, I have done what Anna suggested for a long time and I'm going to do it now it's, I would prefer to say that the army is merely nominal, that's fine and then merely imputed imputed, that would be more accurate, good translation imputed or designated, either one is fine, it's merely nominal it's merely imputed Apart from that, apart from their merely nominal status or, imp- or imputed status, they do not truly exist. They're not really there. 
nowhere to be found. On the basis of scripture and reasoning that, that teach this, you should rest in single-pointed equipoise with the certainty that the mind does not exist the way it appears. So this was very, very concise, but he's just given instructions, pith instructions, on realizing the empty nature of your own mind, the unfindability of the mind, and that this is reminiscent, of course, of Padmasambhava's teachings that I cited from Natural Liberation, engaging in the search for the mind, and then that not finding the mind as something that exists by its own characteristics. Thus the perfection of wisdom in 8,000 verses also says, it's a very, very famous statement, Mind does not exist as the mind. The nature of the mind is clear light. I think it's semni semachite, semni usawawo. I think that's it. I learned it a long time ago. The mind is not the mind. Semni semachite, semni usawawo. The mind isn't the mind. That would probably have to be semgiranjin usawawo. The nature of the mind is clear light. So the mind is an entity. The mind is a subject, something in here. Well, unfindable. So the mind does not exist as some subjective entity in here. The nature of it is just sheer luminosity, sheer clear light. This states that no inherently established mind exists and the nature of the mind is clear light. Emptiness. That indivisibility of luminosity and emptiness. Also the Jewel Heap, that's the uh, Ratna Mega Sutra, Jewel Heap Sutra states... Mind is not seen, was not seen, and will not be seen by any of the Buddhas of the three times. And we know what that means, seen as some entity, some object, something, something inherently existent. None of the Buddhas have seen it, or will ever see it. Then we return to the Gaikyu tradition, J. Marpa. Also, J. Marpa states metaphorically that when he had ascertained the ultimate reality of the mind, as it is, he got it right. And as it is means... Dodo chepa, dodo chepa, and dodo, dodakpa, dodakpa means superposition, what you're superimposing, projecting, adding onto. You cut that, you peel it off, you just sever it. Anything you've projected that wasn't there, cut that. Dodo karasa. And then, dokur, that's it, dokur chepa. So you cut that which is imputed, and then kurwa, anything that would deny what is there, you, t- you terminate that as well. So you release anything that's projected, and you cease denying anything that is there. That's cognitive intelligence, not con- cognitive, cognitive. It's not cognitive hyperactivity, where we're projecting things on reality and then conflating our projections with reality. And it's not cognitive deficit, this is my own terminology, and this is not cognitive deficit in the sense of not seeing what is there. Okay? That pretty much defines seeing reality as it is. So Marpa says here that when he ascertained the ultimate reality of the mind as it is, his mind in meditation was ablaze with emptiness. And as he says, I came to the banks of the Ganges River in the east through the kindness of Jay Maitripa. I realized the ground, unborn ultimate reality. This is, can only be this primordial non-duality of Dhammadhatu and primordial consciousness. My mind was ablaze with emptiness. I saw the primordial nature, reality free of conceptual elaborations. 
That's dotochipa, that is, you cut away, cut through all the conceptual projections upon reality. Cut through. I met the three mother Buddha bodies face to face. Buddha bodies, Dharmakaya, Sambhogakaya, Manakaya, face to face. From then on, this man's conceptual elaborations were severed. And then Dogun Pakdu, Pakmudupa, Pakmudupa, one of the another of the great, very early Gaikyu masters teaches. Mind is the root. Mind is the mind is the root of both samsara and nirvana. Mind is pure suchness from the beginning. Suchness is a synonym for emptiness. Since from the beginning it is peaceful and unborn, mind is forever free from the extremes of conceptual elaborations. So here when he's referring to mind, obviously not samsaric mind, because samsaric mind is not the root of nirvana. Here when he says mind, he's referring to jitata, the ultimate reality of the mind. It is empty by nature, and it is luminous by nature. It is an indivisibility of emptiness and luminosity. And it's unborn and transcendently, primordially peaceful, never disturbed, never agitated, and forever free. That dimension of awareness is forever free of the extremes of conceptual elaborations. It doesn't fall into them. In brief, it is not as if our spiritual friend is reputed to be omniscient, even though he isn't. And and when he says our spiritual friend, he's referring to his root guru, Sangyayishi. In reality, Sangyayishi knows everything, and I've passed on his oral instructions. So he said what he's done here. I, I, I don't see any grounds for doubting what he just said. And that is, he's passing on an oral transmission here that quite possibly, until he wrote it down, hadn't been written down. And then he traces, Sangyayishi received this from him, and him goes back on the Guru lineage. Uh, very analogous to the seven-point mind training. I think we have every reason to believe that the seven-point mind training originated from Atisha. Atisha. But then for generations, I don't know how many, but a number of generations, it was never written down. It was considered between Lumrim, the, the lamp for the path to enlightenment, and the seven-point mind training that the Lumrim was were people of, excuse me, dull faculties, <laughs> where you take it step by step, and you're going renunciation, bodhicitta, shamatha, and, and then finally you get to, at the end of the book, then you get emptiness, right? That's safe, that's safe. You won't fall into nihilism and so forth. But as you, if you have received teachings on the seven-point mind training, he makes a very brief reference to the preliminary practices, four thoughts that turn the mind. And then there's a verse that's omitted. I don't know how it happened, but I saw a very early copy, like a thousand-year-old copy, of the uh, seven-point mind training, the root verses. And there's a verse that virtually all of the later versions leave out. And I, being the total shamatha fanatic, I leapt on it, you know, like a dog finding a juicy bone. And he's just given, Dambo Mundo Dala Lap. First of all, train in the preliminaries. That was a Tibetan. And then the verse that's the line, just a very short line, that's almost universally uh, deleted now, that I don't think they intentionally do, it just gets slipped through, was, Demba Topne Sangwaten. Having achieved stability, let the, let the mystery be revealed. Let the secret be revealed. And the secret, of course, is the nature of emptiness, especially the emptiness of your own mind. But then, but topne, having achieved stability, gee, I gosh, wonder what, what that could mean. Right? <laughs> or maybe Penjana, which enlightens us, as the later incarnation of Atisha. 
uh, of course, he's saying achieve meditative equipoise, that stability, that stillness. And then having done so, now let the mystery be revealed. And then he goes immediately into Bhavashana, right in the teachings of emptiness. So that was like, you know, like a jet that takes off and just goes straight up, you know, not like a big jetliner just slowly taking up. You just go, whew. Uh, that's what he does in Seventh Point Mind Training. It's a very fast takeoff right into ultimate reality, right? What to do in the meditative state and when you're actually on the cushion meditating and what to do in post-meditative state. So this is for people of sharp faculties who will not fall into nihilism and goofy thoughts and misapprehension and so forth. And then laying this, bear in mind, left hand supporting right hand, right, in the mudra of, the mudra of meditative equipoise. Left hand is wisdom. The right hand is skillful means. The right hand is, is renunciation of bodhicitta. The left hand is wisdom. So he's really teaching that approach, that the wisdom is supporting. There the wisdom, as you, as you just initially step into the pool of bodhicitta, you're, cultivating, you're already cultivating that with some insight into emptiness, emptiness of self, emptiness of others. So it's a different strategy, different strategy. So, but then generations later, then uh, Chekawa, Geshe Chekawa, wrote down the, seven, seven, the, the verses of the Seventh Point Mind Training. So he's often cited as the author of it. Well, he was the scribe of it. He was the one that first put it down in writing. And Benjamin Bache, it seemed like he was the scribe who first wrote down these oral instructions that he received from Sangye Yeshe. So it clearly does imply there was an oral lineage of Mahamudra in the Galupa tradition, Sangye Yeshe being the Galupa, because uh, he just said so. So why would he lie? I mean, it would be very nice. I, made, I did all of this by myself. You can give me a big handshake, because I'm so clever. But he said, no, I received this from Sangye Yeshe. In brief, as related by my spiritual friend, Sangye Yeshe, who truly knows everything, this is in the root text, when you're fully aware that whatever appears is conceptually apprehended, then the ultimate, absolute space of phenomena, that's my, def- that's my translation of Dhammadhatu, then the ultimate, absolute space of phenomena appears without reliance on anything else. Mine is a more literal translation. For awareness to enter the nature of this appearance, single-pointedly rest in meditative equipoise in that, how wonderful, emaho, why not make it English? How wonderful, marvelous, fantastic. So there's the root text. Let's just let Benjamin Mujer, I won't interrupt. Benjamin Mujer is going to give a commentary on his own text. So whatever appears is conceptually apprehended. So we like to think, and to some extent we're justified in thinking, that well now I'm just resting in awareness, or in the modern Vipassana tradition, just rest and bear attention, you know, non-reactively. And to some extent, of course, you can, and that can be very beneficial. That's why so many people find Vipassana, or simple mindfulness meditation, helpful. That's because it is helpful. But if one thinks that just by an act of will, you can simply rest, you can just kind of turn off conceptuality altogether. Well, this means you haven't, you know, you're still a beginner. You're not, you really don't understand the mind. Because whatever appears is conceptually apprehended by the samsaric mind, by the non-arya, by the non-arya. Whatever you're tending to, whether you're in deep sleep, whether you're dreaming, having a lucid dream, whether you're in the waking state, whether you're resting in shamatha, whether you're resting in the substrate consciousness, or whether you're engaging in Vipassana practice, whatever appears, uh, the conceptual mind comes in and takes hold. 
it's it's like a conquistador it comes and it takes possession you know i i own that it's it's not voluntary if it were voluntary we could just stop you know like stop it but it doesn't work that way even when you've achieved shamatha it's still imbued with a subtle flow a murmuring a murmuring of subtle conceptuality a subtle bifurcation of subject object a subtle grasping to i like that bliss luminosity non conceptuality the mental afflictions don't arise. Mental afflictions do not arise. They're like, like uh, fleas that carry the bubonic plague. Let's say the bubonic plague. Let's say the bubonic plague is like um, mental afflictions. Well, the bubonic plague couldn't spread without the fleas. They didn't get. They didn't get the bubonic plague. But if you don't have fleas, then they don't get. And then, of course, their host was rats. Mental afflictions, like the bubonic plague, except for they're much more destructive. They killed far more people than bubonic plague did. Mental afflictions. Uh, they can't get around, they can't operate without being hosted by, without being parasitic on, conceptual mind. Mental afflictions don't take root in a purely non-conceptual mind. That doesn't mean the conceptual mind is bad. It can be, you know, we're generating bodhicitta with a conceptual mind, people come up with masterpieces of art, of music, architecture, and so forth, with the conceptual mind. Not bad. Any more than fleas are bad. You know, they're just fleas. They're just insects. But there is the point. Whatever appears is conceptually apprehended. And some years ago, I listened to a, a, a very eminent cognitive psychologist. Her name is Anne Treisman at Princeton University. And I'm quite, I, don't, I can't say this with total certainty, but almost certainty. Uh, when the question came up, in Buddhism we speak of perceptual modes of awareness and then conceptual modes of awareness. And the, and the perceptual, perceptual, are non-conceptual. Pratyaksha, pratyaksha, is not conceptual. And then we have the conceptual. And so we have these two modes. It's very widely acknowledged and studied in Buddhist psychology. And she was asked about this and she said, well, from our perspective, all your modes of apprehension, everything you're aware of, they're all saturated by conceptualization. And therefore, she said, whatever you're experiencing, therefore, I mean, it's not quite this simple, but everything you're experiencing is illusory. That's what she said. Everything you're experiencing, like an optical illusion. You're not seeing reality as it is. And everything you're seeing is filtered, filtered, configured by uh, concepts. Well, that's what he just said uh, 400 years ago that even when you're resting in something that relatively feels like is experienced as non-conceptual, there's a subtle strain of conceptuality. And of course, sometimes we're completely overwhelmed by the concepts. We get totally involved, enmeshed, like a fly in a spider's web, totally enmeshed in our concepts. And then we can go start fantasizing into the projections of you know just getting caught up in our imagination and cognitive hyperactivity disorder. So he says, whatever, is, is conce- whatever appears is conceptually apprehended. The appearances are not conceptual, but our apprehension of them is filtered by concepts. And bear in mind, concept doesn't necessarily mean you don't have to have language. There are concepts that articulate themselves in language, but um, there are subtle levels of, of it's called mentation actually, uh, manas. There are subtle levels of mentation or activity of the mind. Uh, that are non-conceptual on the coarse level, but we still distinguish. That is, it's not coarse conceptualization. So moving on, 
It's just saying this conceptualization just permeates all of our experience, as long as you're an ordinary being, a non-Arya. When you are aware that whatever appears is merely imputed by thought, when you see that, the ultimate absolute space of phenomena appears as a mental object, without depending on other conditions, and you enter it. Your mind, your awareness of it merges, as they say, when you're meditating on emptiness, it's like pouring a glass of water into another glass of water, and it merges. There's a non-duality of the luminosity of your awareness and the emptiness of Dhammadhatu. As Chantikirti states, conventional truth is a method. Ultimate truth emerges from that method. It's a much closer translation of what the Tibetan said. So when you are engaging in investigation, examining how do phenomena appear, how do you apprehend them, do you reify them, how do they exist, from their own side or merely as something imputed, that whole method, that mode of inquiry, which is conventional, it's relative, that's the method, and as a result of devoting yourself to that method, then ultimate truth, shunyata, emerges, it manifests, it becomes clear. Awareness enters into this appearance, the appearance of Dhammadhatu, and upon single-pointedly uniting ultimate reality, I really change this around a lot, I think this is closer. Awareness enters into this appearance, okay, like one glass of water poured into another, and upon single-pointedly uniting ultimate reality, that's Dhammadhatu, the object of the mind, that's what you're attending to, with subjective consciousness, there is meditative equipoise. Meditative equipoise is in that evenness, that balance of uniting, bringing together and indivisibly merging ultimate reality, dhammata, with the mind that realizes it. How wonderful! So that's his commentary to the preceding verse. In accordance with the meaning of the final two lines, for awareness to enter the nature of appearance, of this appearance, single-pointedly rest in meditative equipoise, and that, how wonderful! For that, uh, in accordance with that, so... Dambasangye says, Dambasangye says, whirl the spear of awareness within emptiness. The view of Dingripas is unobstructed. This and other sayings make the same point. And I'm just about positive that's not in the root text. It really doesn't look like it. And so I just have that as a separate line in, small, in smaller letters. This and other sayings make the same point. They, come to, they converge on the same, making the same point. The virtues of equipoise on, Ma, on Mahamudra, the virtues of resting in meditative equipoise in Mahamudra, should be dedicated to unexcelled wa- awakening. So now we're coming to the close here. It'll take him a while. I see we still have 12 pages. But we're coming now to dedication of merit. I mean, he just covered the practice, including culminating in the realization of the emptiness of your own mind and its non-duality with Dhammadatu. So the virtues of equipoise on Mahamudra should be dedicated to unexcelled awakening. In the root text, the passage from among the three divisions, preparation, the actual session, and post-meditation, that's going back, of course, to stanza 9, this, the, uh, the root text teaches this directly. So there are three aspects of the practice and to the text. Preparation, actual session, and then post-meditation. So now we're here in the post-meditative state. So when to apply, when to apply the way of following up is implicit but unclear. In fact, it is to be applied at this juncture in order to delineate boundaries 
from here on out, I set forth what is in the root text. So we finished the main practice, and so now we're in the concluding phase of dedicating merit, which is as important, of course, as the initial motivation. Afterward, after you've been resting in meditative equipoise, non-dually experiencing, or unite, yeah, non-dually experiencing or uniting your experience of Dhammatatu and your own awareness. Afterward, the positive karma that has arisen from meditating on Mahamudra, together with the sea of virtues collected in the three times, should be dedicated to the great unexcelled awakening. So dedicate your merit. It is fitting that this be applied. So now here is a synthesis of how to continue practicing in the post-meditative state after you have arisen from the equipoise of resting in Mahamudra. How to unmistakably ascertain the generic idea of the object of negation when you return to meditative equipoise and how to dispel other qualms regarding both meditative equipoise and the post-meditative state. So I changed a lot there, you can see. So he's dedicated merit. Well, that was when you come to the conclusion of your meditative equipoise, sitting on the cushion doing the form practice, dedicate the merit. But now, of course, maintain the continuity of your practice in between sessions. And so that's what he's describing here. Here's the synthesis of how to practice in the post-meditative state when you've arisen from equipoise and mahamudra, maintaining the flow of awareness, how to unmistakably ascertain the generic idea of the object of negation when you return to meditative equipoise, how do you come back in again, and how to dispel other qualms regarding meditative equipoise and the post-meditative state. So you're not conflating the two, you want to be very clear on that. So the root text teaches thus. Once you familiarize yourself in that way, whatever appears as objects of the six types of consciousness, precisely realize how they appear. Now there's that very, very familiar strategy, right? How they appear. And their way of existence will nakedly and vividly arise. Identifying whatever arises is the crucial point of the view. So he makes it very simple. The Vipassana can be extremely complex, bringing in a whole host of types of logical analyses. But he keeps it simple, as it's very much in the spirit of Mahamudra. So see how they appear, and see how they exist. That will nakedly arise. You'll see their purely imputation or imputed way of existence. You'll see what's designated upon appearances. And you'll see that they don't exist without that designation. And therefore they have to be empty. That is, they're not there from their own side. They're not there in the very nature of appearances themselves. And identifying whatever arises, appearances, objects, and I could say the manner in which they arise, which is to say the manner in which they're apprehended, is the crucial point of the view. In short, whatever appears, whether your own mind or something else, do not reify it. Okay, now this is now between, uh, during the post-meditative state. And you can do that. You can follow his instructions, I think, if and only if you recognize when you're reifying and you recognize when you're not reifying. 
and you know that you're not doing it homogeneously. And that key point this morning, really practical, very short, but when you see that your mind is now in the the thralls of or in the grip of mental affliction, I would suggest you just assume, as a working hypothesis, reification must be active. What am I reifying? And then observe how you're reifying whatever has triggered the mental affliction and is bending you out of shape. So when you see that you do it and then you don't do it, just like the brightly shiny mind is obscured and then not obscured. It's not equally obscured. It's not always under the clouds. It's clear and then it's not clear. We reify and then we don't reify. So then you really need to identify. This is the passion in practice during the post-meditative state. Recognize when you do reify and then stop doing it. And that is, when you recognize that you are reifying, when you recognize that, then you can recognize that that which you reify does not exist from its own side. That's a delusional way of apprehending it. And when, when you see that you're deluded, when you non-deludedly recognize that you're deluded, then you can stop being deluded. You can stop acting in a deluded way. And you can actually stop reifying it. It is an act of will. But if and only you, if, if and only you recognize it when it occurs and recognize you don't need to do it, then you have a choice. Ascertain its mean its manner of existence. And that's the first the first line in Atisha's seven point mind training after achieving Shamata is Chuna Milam Taburta, view phenomena as if they were dreams, appearing to exist from the known side and then not. They don't exist in that fashion. And therefore don't reify them, don't de- de- don't reify them as if they did. So ascertain its manner of existence and sustain that continually. Okay, that's a tall order. But that's what he's suggesting, that's what you should do. Now, of course, if you've achieved shamatha, that becomes quite practical. If you don't, well, you you can have a lot of mind-wandering and so forth. It'll break it up a lot. But that's what he's he's suggesting here. This is the... You you arise from the space-like meditative equipoise, and in the post-meditative state, you attend to the dream-like, or the the illusion-like, nature of appearances, that they appear in a manner which they don't exist. And sustain that continually. Well, you can't do that, of course, if you've not developed a high degree of shamatha. You can't do anything continually. Knowing this, the natures of all the phenomena of samsara and nirvana are united as one. So then you see that the natures of all phenomena, of every kind whatsoever, they're all united as one in the sense that they're all equally empty of inherent nature. Your guru, the Dharma, Buddha, pure lands, everything. So there's the root text and then the commentary. Thus, after familiarizing yourself with meditative equipoise like that, in, in post-meditation, you should, through detailed and dis- discriminating examination, I would probably say discerning. Discriminating sounds kind of nasty. It's not wrong, but I just prefer through precise and discerning examination, well realize the way anything, such as form and so forth, that, it, as, that appears as an object of the six types of consciousness, appears, such as to the eye and so forth. So recognize how they appear. 
Back to that theme. Recognize the mode of appearance. Recognize the incongruity, incompatibility between how things appear, how they exist. By analyzing in that way, and bear in mind you're using using both of the, well, two out of five of the jhana factors here, like very sharp knives. If you've achieved shamatha, have all the five jhana factors right at your fingertips. And this is coarse investigation and precise analysis. And you're using that. Again, it's not just sitting there being blissful. By analyzing in that way, although they appear to be true existent, appearing like something unreal and hollow, like a dream, a mirage, or a reflection of the moon and water, their manner of existence as dependently related events, bearing no independent essence, appears nakedly and vividly. I'll read that again, because I changed a lot. By analyzing in that way, although they appear to be truly existent, appearing like something unreal and hollow, like a dream, a mirage, or a reflection of the moon and water, their manner of existence as, de- as dependently related events, how do they exist? Well, they exist as dependent related events, or some people say dependent arisings, bearing no independent existence. That manner in which they exist appears nakedly and vividly. So now you're really there at form is emptiness, emptiness is form. You see them as non-dual. On that basis, your ascertainment of ultimate reality grows greater. For as J. Maitri Yogi says, identification whatever of whatever appears is the crucial point of the view. So it's very, very empirical. Not really a head trip at all. Theory, just enough. But I think it's crucial here that he says, he said way back, way back when, weeks ago, is that there are two approaches, two legitimate approaches. And one is, first you really immerse yourself through hearing, thinking, and meditation on the view, especially hearing and thinking, and that can take years, of hearing and thinking and debating and memorizing and analyzing, investigating the great treatises on Madhyamaka and maybe get your PhD or your Acharya or Kempo or Geshe degree. And then you go off and you cultivate the meditative state, shamatha. So there's one way. In which case you're going to have a lot of groundwork to be done. There's a lot of theory to really immerse oneself and sharpen your fast sharp, clear, and profound intelligence. So you're just sharpening your knives all the way through that. And then, coming very well prepared in terms of theory, then you immerse yourself in meditative equipoise, and you proceed further. If you were taking that approach, this would probably be a 500-page text, because he spent a lot of time laying out the subtleties of the Madhyamaka view. But this this text presents pith instructions, and of course, it's, it's highlighting the alternative route of practicing and achieving shamatha first, which of course seems to be, have been, according to Tsongkhapa, it was very rare back then. And according to Dujumalingba, Padmasambhava, it's very rare in the 19th century. And that was before the genocide and the, you know, the catastrophe in Tibet. So it seems pretty reasonable to expect that there are relatively few people who are following this route nowadays. And my very passionate conviction is there should be more. So, so knowing thus how to practice, see the image. So, once you've arisen from that, there we go. So, so there we go. It's simply it's like 
Now, oh, what more? Okay, wait at the top. Now, what 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 more is there? What need is there of more? Aren't we finished yet? And he says, well, well, let me summarize briefly. For those of us commoners, the term is tsurtong, tsurtong, uh, and it's those who are looking this way, on the near side. So what was over here is samsara, and what's over there is nirvana. It's kind of cute. But the aryas see over there. They're seeing the reality that is veiled by relative truth. Where those, and so that's you know, the transcendent. Whereas those of us have not ascertained the transcendent, then we're stuck in here, in relative truth, in samsara. And so, we're, so I, I chose his translation, commoners. Actually, I think he said, what is he, he doesn't say commoners. What did he say here? Roger. This side of things, yeah. Well, it's literally true, but it's, you wouldn't have a clue what he's talking about. But Surtong, Surtong is referring to those who have not yet seen ultimate reality, emptiness. So, but on another occasion in this translation, he refers to them as commoners. It refers to us as commoners. Just, you know, waddling around in samsara. For those of us commoners, it is precisely the way this or that subject, one's own mind and so forth, appears that is the mode of appearance of the object of negation. So for us ordinary folks, put it that way, it's just the way that things appear that is to be refuted. And whether it's our minds, object appearances, and so forth, they all appear as if from their own side, by their own inherent nature, really there. And that's precisely what is to be negated through incisive, piercing, penetrative insight. So thus, without fixating on or reifying that appearing object, and fixating on, that's, that's my translation here of jemba, uh, which can be manifesting jemba, fixating, I think it's pretty good. Fixating, well, this is exactly what happens whenever we experience the mental afflictions of craving or of hostility. We fixate, we get fixated. You know? Paul Ekman calls that slipping into a refractory period. Some of you might remember that very cool term, straight psychology. But where we just slip into a mode where we just can't see out of that particular mode, if we develop some real contempt for another person, then all we can see of that person are the, is that person's contemptible qualities. And if the person has any other qualities, they're just invisible, we just can't see them. Other people who don't loathe or have contempt for the person might see them perfectly well and just say, what's wrong with you? You have this kind of monocular vision, like you can only see this aspect of this person. What's wrong with you? And the answer is, well, you're in a refractory period. And likewise, when we become infatuated with someone, whether it's a political figure, romantic, or whatever, and not only a person, but a thing, a car, what have you, whenever there's an infatuate, all we can see is the positive. We accentuate, we fixate, and of course, very often think, I've got to have it, got to have it. Uh, and so that's the fixation. Generally, it falls under those two camps of craving or hostility. So without fixating on or reifying, well, that's where the delusion comes in. So the fixating would be kind of indicative, I think, of the craving and hostility, and the reifying is pointing right to delusion. So without fixating on or reifying that appearing object, you must ascertain that his way of existing is simply its lack of existing as it appears. That's very simply stated. That's emptiness. It doesn't exist as as it appears. So this is where the practice of bare attention uh, shows its severe limitations. And that is if one is quite 
well, let's just be gentle here, in an uninformed way, equating vipassana with mindfulness, false, equating mindfulness with bare attention, wildly false, and then just resting in kind of open awareness or bare attention or choiceless awareness and thinking I'm practicing vipassana. Well, you're just false, 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 a whole stack of false, falsehood. But if you think that's sufficient, well, again, you may be exceptional like Bahia, who can say? But if you're not like Bahia, you're resting there, simply attending to appearances at face value. Right? You're just seeing appearances. And the appearances lie. The very, it's not just what you're piling onto them. Even without conceptually reifying them, they already appear as if they're appearing from their own side. And they will continue to do so until you're an eight-stage Arya Bodhisattva. That's, that's when you begin to start removing that veil, that cognitive obscuration of the appearance of things as if from their own side. That's way so far down the path. You can't even imagine that far. Even an arhat, even an arhat, according to Madhyamaka, even an arhat, a person who's now totally free, still sees things as if they exist from their own side. That's how they appear to him or her. Doesn't grasp onto them as such. But still, appearances lie. Right? And it's only when you're on the eighth bumi, you're kind of coming around the finish line, that only then do you begin, through your practice, to erode, to evaporate, to dispel that cognitive obscuration of appearances manifesting as if from their own side. So that's so far up the road, you know. And so for ordinary people like us, like ourselves, commoners, ordinary folk, this may be a nice word for it, um, whatever attending to appears in a way that it doesn't exist. And if you are without using any kind of critical acumen, any kind of discernment, investigation, analysis, none of that, because it's exhausting, uh, and you just say, no, no, no I'm just going to practice Vipassana. So many people think this. The, the, uh, the propaganda has been extremely effective. That Vipassana is just being here now, just, just, now I'm practicing Vipassana, I'm just being aware of whatever's coming up. Well, you're aware of delusional appearances, and you're just resting there in delusional appearances of your own mind, of your own identity, and of a phenomena, and you're just resting there. Ah. If I'm not a marmot yet, I'm definitely on that track. <laughs> you know, it's the crudest facsimile of resting in rigpa, because you haven't even started. You're taking like it'd be like a little kid, like a five-year-old watching Nova, where Green was his first name, Green, the physicist Brian Green. Imagine a little like a five-year-old watching Brian Green explain st- string theory. Do I get my doctorate now? Ah, Totally clueless. So, but people like to think that they're very advanced. They like to think they're practicing the highest. So they get a weekend introduction to Dzogchen and they're Dzogchen practitioners. Maybe they are. Probably not. So, thus without fixating on or reifying that appearing object, which we do all the time, and we have to cut that. That's an old habit. We have to sever that habit. And it does not come easily. That's where ethics, samadhi, and wisdom come in. Well, without fixating on or reifying that appearing object, you must ascertain that its way of existing is simply its lack of existing as it appears. And you're not going to get that by just staring at it or maintaining a moment, moment, not gentle awareness. You're not even close. You haven't even started. Such meditative equipoise is like space, open, expansive, with no object. 
So you're resting in space-like meditative equipoise. Once you have arisen from that, again, I change this translation a lot. Once you have arisen from that, when you observe whatever remains in the absence of true existence, so you're seeking to sustain your awareness of the emptiness of phenomena as you get off your cushion, walk about, have a cup of tea or whatever. When you observe whatever remains in the absence of true existence, you should always maintain your realization by applying the yogas of post-meditation, in which things appear unmistakably as dependent-related events that are merely nominal, brought about by mere imputation. So even though to your awareness they're appearing as if they're inherently existent, with the eye of wisdom, you must see them as empty. You maintain your realization by applying the yogas of post-meditation, not just being aware of the appearances. And by applying the, the yoga of post-meditative state, sustaining that flow of insight, then you see things unmistakably as dependently related events, not inherently existent. And those dependently related events, in those three ways uh, explained earlier, you see that the, the way of existing a phenomenon is merely nominal. And, depends for their, and they depend for their very existence upon imputation. Knowing thus how to practice during meditative equipoise and in the post-meditative state, rest in equipoise by indivisibly unifying the ultimate nature of all phenomena, of samsara and nirvana, as the mere absence of true existence. So that, that equality of seeing all phenomena of samsara and nirvana as being equal in the sense of being, just realizing emptiness as the mere absence of true existence. Seeing this as the ultimate mode of existence, the ultimate nature of all phenomena. During the post-meditative state, you must familiarize yourself with uniting the relative natures of phenomena as being mere appearances like illusions. So when you're in the meditative state, you're just resting in that space-like awareness, realizing the emptiness of all phenomena. So emphasis on the kind of the ontological emphasis of how do they exist, they're empty of inherent nature. Then you emerge from meditation into the post-meditative state, and now phenomenologically, as you, you must engage with and be aware of, the myriad appearances arising, the many objects that populate the world around you, then you must see them as being Mere appearances. Mere appearances mean empty of inherent nature, like illusions that appear to be there and have causal efficacy. But they are not really there. Also, as stated by Aryadeva, the viewer of one entity is explained as the viewer of all. The emptiness of one is the emptiness of all. So it's that theme. If you realize the emptiness of one, you realize the emptiness of all. And that's where we will pause. Covered a bit of territory today. Still have another ten pages to go. Okay, so there's your marching orders. The army of the Pashina practitioners. But also, now that we're we're well into the Pashina territory, which is way up there in the top of the pyramid, clarity, vividness, acuity, um, I know very well that it can be a bit stressful, a bit tight, a bit exhausting. 
Don't overdo it. If you're the chief shamatha, then I would say, just go for it. Because <laughs> you know? you're not going to get stressed out. The base of the pyramid is so strong, you just keep on cutting, cutting, cutting through. Make quick work of it. As Geshen Gautagya said, if you're chief shamatha, vipassana is easy. If you haven't, or the less you have, the harder is the vipassana. So, in the theme of just being kind to yourself and allowing yourself to still enjoy the practice, and you can't do that, I think, if you're just hitting a wall of frustration uh, and feeling you're just not up to it, it's not going well, then keep on coming back to. You can always throttle back and just come back to any mode of the, of the shamatha that you like. Just keep on cultivating more and more deeply the sense of ease, the inner calm, the composure. But also you can leap ahead once in a while. And that's what we did in the last session. Because that was our best approximation of just resting in rikpa. Okay. And it's not foolish. I think it's not misguided. Uh, and I do not think that wonderful teachers like Tsukni Rinpoche and Mingyur Rinpoche, Chukinima Rinpoche and, and many others, giving weekend, weekend or week-long and so forth introductions to the Dzogchen, I do not think that they are, are misleading people. Uh, I've heard them speak. I've never heard them say anything that I thought, oh, no. Um, I think it's wonderful. It's wonderful to inspire people, to give them a taste. You know? uh, and so this gives a little taste of, all right, let's just do our best approximation. It's like when you're resting in awareness of awareness as a method. You're doing your best approximation of simply resting in the substrate consciousness, right? Taking the fruition as the path. Well, it's a kind of poor approximation, but for the time being, it's as well as you can do. So be happy with that. And likewise, you know, from now on, uh, when the spirit moves you, when you feel like it, then do a little bit of investigation, like seeing, you know, the searching for the mind. And not finding it. Not finding that which is observing, you know, that entity in there, the, the real subject. And in that not finding, then the claustrophobia of reifying ourselves and our own minds, the kind of alienation, frankly, there is an alienation of that. If I truly exist over here by my, my own inherent nature, then I am alienated from everything else, which is radically other, right? And so this is freeing that. It's liberating. Very relaxing just to cut through that and say, oh, what a relief. What a relief. That which is always so claustrophobic and tight and bound up, knotted up. Oh, it doesn't even exist. What a relief. And then resting there, just then rest in not doing. With no expectation, no striving, no anticipation. Just rest there. And that's where profound intelligence arises. You get there by means of the fast, the sharp, and the clear. Where you wind and wind up is profound, profound wisdom. And that's where the profundity arises, in that finally that not doing. But that assumes you've done the hard work, the shamatha, the vipassana, the investigation. And it's so tempting. I totally understand. I mean, there's nothing difficult about this. Why people would just like to skip all the difficulty to shamatha, all the dredging of the psyche and all that, and fretting, oh, I'm not progressing very fast. And say, oh, that's all so, so not what I want to do. And Vipassana, oh, what a headache, gosh. Can I skip that too? Oh. <laughs> just be the power of now. Just, just be, oh, that's what I used to do when I was 20. <laughs> I like that. And even without the marijuana, it's still cool. <laughs> Natural high. <laughs> Okay, dude and dudesses. (laughs) See you later. Have a good night.